time. That was good, wasn't it? There's just uh, something about a child who has the word of God in his or her mouth that is powerful. That's, um, that was a gift that the parents were giving to her. And uh, that's where character starts. Tonight, I want to talk to you about excellence in character. We're in this series called What About Tim? And uh, when you're young, like Timothy was, anything's possible. You're invincible. Life is out there. And here's a young guy in the big city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, probably trying to oversee a group of first-century local churches. There's no leadership conferences. There's no library. There's no Google. He can't go get help there and leadership stuff. But his experience, he only has his experience growing up with his family and with the Apostle Paul as his mentor for some years. And that occasional letter, of which we have two in the New Testament. Here's Timothy's in his probably in his mid-30s by now. And he's been through a bunch. He's been with some wild places with Paul. He's been to Macedonia and Greece and Berea and Athens. These are towns in Greece and Corinth and and now he's handed the responsibility of leading probably a group of churches in what is now, as I've mentioned, modern-day Turkey. But Paul loves him. And when you read Philippians, you see that, that uh, Paul captures his expression of love for Timothy in these words. This is just Philippians, the... Third chapter, second chapter, the 19th verse. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. He's talking to the people at Philippi. That I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him. Now, Timothy's a little bit timid. You get that when you read the letters to him. But he says, there's no one that I have that's like Timothy. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So here you have these two letters that come to Timothy and he's challenging him. He's saying to him, Tim, now's the time. I know you've had some challenges in leadership, but now's the time. And in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, the 12th verse, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. This is what he says to him. Don't let people look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, parentheses, behavior, in love, in faith, and in purity. I want to take that statement and kind of look at it tonight and say, what does that say to us about how we walk out our lives? That verb, look down on, is not just an attitude. It's not just, well, I kind of, in my mind, I look down on that person. Apparently, there's some action that is taking place that literally means that older people are discounting him. Sometimes in Washington, D.C., you'll hear somebody say, well, I know that guy was made secretary of whatever, but... You know, he's a lightweight. He's not a heavyweight. He doesn't have gravitas. That's the big word. They don't have gravitas. He's not, he, he doesn't have the weightiness to carry that position. Apparently, that's a little of what was going on around Timothy. And literally, Paul is saying to him, don't let those older guys shoulder you out of the way. But let your 
office carry you, and when you express yourself, lead back, lean back against that shouldering with your character. So much so that you are an example. The word that's used there is like striking something and making an impression, or you have a mold into which you pour gold or silver and shape some kind of piece of jewelry. He says, be a mold, be a pattern, be an example, and let your example tell the tale, not your years. Don't let, don't let this thing about age get in your way. And this, um, the way he says it, he says, express your office with your character, how you speak and what you do. Let that be fed or let the seedbed of that be love and trust and purity. It kind of flows together. I, we had two of our nephews come and we're doing some work on our house not long ago, and both of them are in the trades, in the construction business. One comes from the plastering trade, and he's big and, you know, just broad-shouldered. The other guy's a carpenter. And we were driving by a place down by our house, and there's this sign that, that kind of flows as well. And, the, and they both saw it and started laughing. It said, cold beer, wine, karate. You know, I, that's that's pretty good sequence, you know. You just... Here is Paul who says... Lead with your character, and let me tell you how character works. So what is character? Character is not a biblical word, but it's certainly a biblical concept. Whatever it is, the very saying of it is good. There are several sayings about character, like character is what you do when no one is watching. Many of us have heard that. Or character is not so much created by circumstance as it is revealed by circumstance. But whatever it is, character carries with it a moral sense. It has to do with substance, with strength, with courage, with doing the right thing. There are a number of educational initiatives around the country and here in this town on character counts and all of those sorts of things. And it has to do with teaching little people and adolescents values like honesty and stewardship and kindness and generosity and courage and freedom, justice, equality, respect. When I read those words, it sounds strangely like Jesus to me. So where does it begin? How does, how does that work? Building character begins in early childhood. Building character begins in early childhood. That's why I love what that little girl just did on the screen. Listen to how Paul says it to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 5 through 7. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us the spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. So Paul affirms Timothy's roots in the faith because of his, his grandmother and his mother. And in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, he says it again. He's just said it, and he says it again. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know, excuse me, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how, how from in infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation, through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says, you learn this from your infancy, you know who taught you. Now, the scriptures he was learning were not these scriptures that we're talking about. These were the Old Testament scriptures he was learning. This is the Torah and the Psalms and all of that. But it was building into him something that gave him faith in the Most High God. Some months ago, I was sitting with several leaders in Washington, D.C., and they were people, some of whom you would know if I named them, and, and, and I just asked them this question. I said, when you think back on your lives, who is it in your spiritual experience in your early years that left their fingerprints on your soul? It was quiet for a moment, and they went around the circle, and each of the four or five guys said the same thing. My mother or my grandmother. My mother or my grandmother. I was at a men's retreat in Kansas City a couple of years back, and we asked that same question of the guys around the table. Who is it in your early years left their fingerprints on your soul? And this one guy said, my mom. He said, we lived up on the way up near the Canadian border in Minnesota. He said, we lived in the little house that was heated by a central stove downstairs. And he said, my mom would get up every morning at 5 o'clock because my dad worked for the railroad. It might have been 4.30 or something. And my brother and I slept upstairs. And um, my mom would get up, put logs in the stove, get it hot, open that door, and let that warm air start coming up the stairs. And then she'd start frying bacon and eggs and pancakes. I mean, it was a, I can't remember all the things, but it sounded, it made me salivate just listening to a spiritual journey. You know, I, and he just, he said, and the smell of that bacon came wafting up the stairs and the smell. And then he said, my dad would, she'd give him his breakfast every morning, same way. My mom was a believer. My dad wasn't so much. And he would sit there and eat his eggs and bacon and she would read to him out of the scriptures. Every morning, she just read the Psalms. And he says, I have this image in my head. I'm warm, snuggled down under a down comforter. I got the smell of bacon and the warm air coming up. And I hear my mom's voice reading the scriptures. What do we, I mean, how could you not be spiritual when that happens? You know, that combination of the hearing and the smelling and all of that coming together. I just like to exhort and, and challenge you grandparents. Keep it up. You parents, keep it up. You single moms, keep it up. Don't get weary in well-doing. You single dads, never quit. Keep it up. You're doing a good and a profound and a right thing. So, character is acting from conscience. Character is knowing right from wrong and doing right. Character is being responsible. All of the above. Let me just kind of parse that a bit. First of all, doing right. There's an international tragedy going on as we speak. You say, I know, the economy is melting down around the world. That's a tragedy. That's a, that is a tragedy. But there's another one. There are 100 million children around the world who are abandoned children, street kids, 
11 million of them by any estimate in India alone. Maybe 750,000 in our own country. These are kids who were abandoned when they were small and they grow up on the streets. Now what happens when a child is abandoned when he or she is small is that they, they get what is called, and many of you here, several of you might be specialists in this, they get what is called an attachment disorder. That is that they lose the inability or lose the ability to attach emotionally. And when you don't attach, everything changes. You don't then reciprocate. You can't have empathy. You, you become the standard by which you live. You, you can't distinguish right from wrong. There is no conscience factor, what we would call a conscience factor. These, this, is, this is what it means to do right. They don't have that peace. 100, 100 million around the world and the number grows every week and what happens when that happens is that it just becomes about survival doing right is the essence of character being responsible taking responsibility and following through is the essence of character some years ago after the national prayer breakfast we had 50 folks from overseas, members of parliament and others, who went with us to Norfolk Navy Base. And we had lunch on, I believe it was the USS George Washington, an aircraft carrier. We had people from third world countries or developing nations who had never seen anything like this. And, and uh, I've only been on aircraft, car aircraft carriers a few times, but it's like 11 stories from the water to the top of the of the bridge, maybe more than that. It's this huge thing, 100,000 ton displacement, several football fields long, 5,000 sailors live on that ship, and we're going up the gangplank, and I'm walking near the vice president of Mongolia. Mongolia is a country that has 2 million people and 20 million sheep. <laughs> and he's just like this. And I, I don't live in Mongolia, but I'm like this, saying this is unbelievable. And we had lunch with various people, and then we went up to the bridge, and they started asking questions of the helmsman. He said, how do you guide this ship? And the helmsman said this and that and the other, and the helmsman said, I get this order, and then I repeat the order, and then I tell him what I did, and he repeats back what I did. So there are four steps, so you have this responsibility factor in play. What amazed them most was not that sequence. What amazed them most was that the person who was telling them that had been in the Navy seven months. And it was a 19-year-old woman from Colorado. And people from other countries were saying, what? But she's so young. How, how could you give her the responsibility? And part of the genius, if you will, of the United States military is that young people are given responsibilities with accountability and guidelines and training in order to execute their responsibility. It builds character into folks. So here's Timothy walking in apostolic authority among young churches, grappling with responsibility, working at doing what's right. And Paul challenges him, stand tall, do it with your character. So what does that look like? How do we get there? Two things express character. One is what I say and how I say it. And the other is what I do and how I do it. 
Character shows up when those two things match. We call that congruence. You know, he walks in the door and you say to him, ma'am, how'd your day go? And he's had a horrible day. He knows he's had a horrible day. He says, good. There's the words and the you walk in and she's there fixing a meal, sir. You say, how are things going? Pots and pans, bang. She says, fine. It's not it's not quite there. But what what do words do? Words communicate ideas and feelings. There's that old saying that we used to say when I was a kid, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. And I'm thinking, really? I don't think so. When I was president of Bethany College, I used to keep under my under the glass on my desk a piece of poetry by Carl Sandburg, Sandburg that he wrote in 1922 called Primer Lesson. It says, look out how you use proud words. When you let proud words go, it is not easy to call them back. They wear long boots. They wear hard boots. They walk off proud. They can't hear you calling. Look out how you use proud words. There are some times when I've gotten upset at home, and I know it's hard for you tonight, but sometimes I, and you, and you say stuff, and you say, man, well, it, it, it's gone. It walks off proud. It's got long boots and hard boots, and it can't hear you calling. Words express who I am. Blessings and cursings, the encouragement or punishment. Ruthie says that I have a tone when I get upset. That's it. You know, I don't shout or anything. The first time I, the first time I raised my voice in our marriage, Ruth started crying, and I'm going, "Oh man!" But I, you know, because when you start crying, we usually don't know what to do. And and I said, "What did I say?" And her father, she said, "I never heard my dad raise his voice." Her father was this even, tempered, kind, didn't use proud words kind of person. I hated him. No, I didn't. But sometimes, sometimes my tone, my, my volume will not be loud, but my tone is screaming. Watch out for, for how we communicate in that way. Just just the use of words. I mean, all the difference in the tone. Some of your speech communications, people know this. Tone is like 80%. There's a huge difference between I love you and I love you. <laughs> Same words. Totally different meaning. I love how the songwriter said it thousands of years ago in Psalm 1914. May the words of my mouth... And the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Why don't we say that together? Let's just say that. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's do it one more time. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I have a friend whose dad would pray with the three boys. He had two brothers. And when they'd go off to school every morning, virtually, they'd say that, that verse. And he'd say, now, boys, let's pray that as you go off to school today, you'll do something noble. Well, you hear that for 
10 or 12 years. Pretty soon you start thinking, maybe I could do something noble. Maybe my words and my actions would match. James compares the tongue to a rudder of a ship or a spark that sets a forest fire. It's relatively small but has this huge impact. And Jesus is the Word. He's the great communication. What I say, how I say it, that's huge. So what about actions? The word that's used for life in that text or behavior literally means to turn back. It means to move around. As you move around, how are you moving around? That is, what, what kind of impact does your life have as you move around? At some point, words can be cheap. You hear that all the time. Well, words are cheap. You need to put some action. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. You know, some of you heard that phrase. And Paul is saying to Timothy, how you do what you do is critical. Take care with your elders, how you, how you speak with them. Don't be compromised by money. Don't let power go to your head. All these things. When you read the Timothys, when you read those letters, he keeps coming back again and again to those themes. It's one thing for Jesus to say, I love you and I came to serve you. It's quite another to do what Romans 5.8 says. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, I love you. And then he proves it. He says the words and he takes the action. And when he takes the action in his dying for me, he shouts something about my value. You know this. The value of an object is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. If you've ever tried to sell anything, you know that. You may think it's worth 800 bucks, and they say, I'll give you four. You think your house is worth this much and they say, no, I think it's worth that much. The value of an object is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. And when Jesus went to the cross, he said, I love you and I mean it. I have a friend who says, I think Jesus went to the price, excuse me, went to the cross to set the price on us so high that he could never be outbid. Let me say that again. I think Jesus went to the cross, my friend said, to set the price on us so high that he could never be outbid. Character shows up in the tenor and nature of our words and actions. They reflect what's in us. And so he's challenging Timothy. Timothy, since you were small, things have been put into you. Don't be afraid to let them out. Don't be timid. Power, love, self-discipline, that stuff of character is all there. Let it come out. There are three things, at least three, but these three in this context fuel character. Love, faith, and purity. So it's how I say, how I speak. It's what I do. It's how I love, how I trust. And is it shot through with a pure motive, is it shot through with purity? When I love and trust God and strive for purity by being close to Him, because these aren't a checklist. I, I can't say, well, I've got this much love and this much trust and I'm this pure. I don't, you know, it doesn't have that kind of scale. 
I think you become these things as you snuggle up to God, if you'll allow me that phrase. As we seek after Him, as we press into Him, as we walk with His people, I think these things grow in us. And when I love and trust God and strive for purity by being close to Him, what I say and what I do starts lining up. When I love and trust God and strive for purity in what I do, what I say and what I do brings life to people. When I strive to be close to God, what I say and what I do is a pattern for others. Timothy, be a pattern for the believers in how you talk, how you walk, how you love, how you trust, and the purity of your life. Just a word about love. I, we, we talk lots about love here, and, we, and you can read about love in 1 Corinthians 13, so I'm not going to go there tonight. But when you read 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter, where love dreams the best for the other, love holds no record of wrongs. I was reminded of the memorial service for my father-in-law, you know, that one that's steady and all like that. One of the fellows stood up and started reading 1 Corinthians 13, the qualities of love. And he said, the best thing I can say about Roy Blakely is this. And he just read those verses and sat down. Next week, I want to talk to you about faith. I want to talk to you about excellence and faithfulness. That's part of what Timothy is commended for. There's no one, there's no one like him that I have who's been this faithful to me and to the dream, Paul says. Let me speak to you for just a moment or two or a few minutes about purity. Purity. Now, there's a thought. Purity, innocence, authenticity, they they seem to go together. It was interesting when Sarah Groves was here a couple of weeks ago, and she sang just the way she talked. It wasn't just that her voice was pure or clear, but you had this sense I, I felt connected to. I'm saying, you know, it sounds like Jesus really is singing here. It, it sounds like that there's just something about the way she expressed herself. There's something so attractive about purity. You know, when you, those of you who are golfers, sometimes some guy will hit a shot and the, and the commentator will say, you know, that guy just has a pure golf swing. Or now there was a golf shot. That was pure. That was sweet. Some years ago, about 30-some years ago, Ruth and I went to Germany. And um, we visited Darmstadt, Germany, a place called Canaanland. In 1944, in December of that year, December the 12th, I believe, the Allied bombers, RAF and the Allied forces, saturated bombed the city of Darmstadt because it was the place where the Germans made buzz bombs for the attacks on England. In 20 minutes, they killed 12,000 people and made 70,000 homeless. There were some young Lutheran girls, teenagers there, who felt like that was God's judgment upon them for not standing up to Hitler against the Jews. I mean, for the Jews against Hitler. And... um, They said, if we survive the war, we will come back to Darmstadt and we will start a community where it will be reconciling and peaceful in the community. When Ruth and I walked onto that, into that community, 
the story of it is tremendous, and I don't have time to go into it all, except that at one point they didn't have anything after the war. Everything was devastated. But they felt like the Lord had told them to build this place, and so they, they needed water. And hydrologists told them there's no water in that whole area. They said, well, we believe we're supposed to be here. So they dug, these young women in their long habits, dug a pond, kind of a, a lake that went from here over to the edge of the platform. Around, and they did it in flagstone, and a farmer came down and he drilled and tried to get through, and, and it just hit bedrock. They couldn't get through. And so they went into a tent that they called their miracle tent. It's the place they went when they hit things and they needed to... And, and they asked themselves the question, maybe God is trying to tell us that there's bedrock in our lives, that there's, that there's, there's a place that he can't get through. And they started praying and, and confessing to each other and asking forgiveness for things. And about that time, the farmer came back and said, let's try one more time. I've sold a piece of property. Let's try it one more time. They came back and they drilled down and they punched through the bedrock and they hit the largest reservoir of water in the whole region. It was an artesian well and it bubbled up and it's there today and you can go and drink right out of the out of the lake. And we were there for lunch and they came around and they poured this water into our glasses and I tasted it. And I said, man, is that water pure and sweet? That is really good water. And this young Lutheran sister looked at me and said, all of the Heavenly Father's water is good. <laughs> I said, I'm your guy. There's something, you know, we're a people who love purity in water. We love purity in the air. We love purity in the environment. We love purity in the ball game. We don't want some guy playing basketball to take a shot and say, I'll take five for that. And you only get two for yours. We, we want guidance. We want things so it's right. But sometimes purity in my person goes wanting. What makes other things pure is either distillation or heat or pressure or filters. And I ask myself, what are the filters in my life that help me be pure? What are the filters in my life that make my motives be pure? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to have pure motives. You know, it, 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 and, but God wants us to have his kind of purity. I don't confess to being there, okay? But I do confess to wanting it. And to Timothy, who had been with Paul in Corinth and Athens and seen the, the flesh pots, if you will, of Corinth, seen firsthand the temple prostitutes, just to take one thing, just to take sexuality as a, as a piece. You know, when I was a young pastor, I did two series back in Urbana, Illinois, this is years ago, that m more tapes were purchased. And I don't go by purchase of tapes, but more tapes were purchased for these two things than any of the other. One was how to know the will of God. And the other one was God and sexuality. Because we live on those streets. And here is Timothy, who's a young guy. And he's seen the seen the flesh pots of Corinth. He's been by the temples where the prostitutes are there. And... and where sexual activity was part, they said, of knowing God, of their act of worship. And in any cultic situations, you often find that entanglement where sexuality is used as a hook and it is demeaned because of how they do things. We live in a culture that uses sexuality as a hook, everything from T-shirts to cars to whatever. But here is God who says, look, I invented the sex thing. This is my idea. I know how this works. 
And when you have character, you put this thing in guidelines, in boundaries. Because you're not, it's not just body to body, if I can be so blunt. It's person to person. I'm sharing my person in this part of my life. I give it away and I can't get it back. And God says, let me show you how to do this. Do this with purity. Understand this with a pure motive. Pure really is light in a dark place. Paul says, let purity be a staple of who you are. But how do I get there in the purity department? How do I get there? Some of you say, Dick, you have no idea where I've been, and you don't know where I've been, so we're equal, okay? Let me tell you how we get there. It's what God says by His Spirit through John in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, our wrong choices, our mismanagement, our mistakes, our recklessness. And will purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. If we say, I'm guilty. I did it. I don't want to go there again. He says, I am faithful. I am just. I will take care of that. I will wash it away so that, so that I won't even remember it. There was a young kid from Pittsburgh who came to the University of Illinois some years ago. By the name of Lenny Bartlotti. And he was a songwriter. And he wrote a song that included this phrase. Your blood speaks louder than all my sin. When the blood of Jesus washes away my sin and makes me pure, it's like having spiritual dialysis. He scrubs us clean again and again and again. And Paul is saying, let your words and your actions be congruent and fuel it with love, how you love me and how you love each other, how you trust me, how you trust each other. And with purity, keep your heart open in that way, because people will sense that, that you're speaking out of a pure heart. And even as I speak tonight, we can sit here and do that in our hearts and minds, even as I speak, even, even as I'm talking, you can say, Lord. You know the deal this week. You know that thing four weeks ago. You know that I let it go. I give it to you. I need a purity of your flow of your spirit in my life. Let me just give you a couple quick examples of character and I'm done. Many of you remember that film. It's got to be 30 plus years ago called Chariots of Fire. How many remember that film? Remember that film? And part of it was about a young Scotsman by the name of Eric Little. Eric Little was raised by missionary parents in China. And he was fast. I love that. I love that phrase that he uses when he's talking to a sister who's concerned he'll get so excited about the Olympics he'll never go to China. And they're standing out north of Edinburgh there and you can hear the little train whistle in the background. And he says, Jenny, God has called me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. But he was the one who stood up to the British Olympic Committee because they wanted him to run on Sunday. And in his day at that time, it sounds kind of quaint now, but in that day at that time in 1924, and because of his convictions, because of his character, he said, I won't do it. And God opened up a whole other door and he ran a totally different race and won the gold medal. Character. I have a friend in Washington by the name of Barry Black. 
He's chaplain of the United States Senate. You can read a book he's written. It's called From the Hood to the Hill. Barry Black is a retired two-star admiral, United States Navy. He was chief of chaplains. He was raised in the, in the hood in Baltimore, Maryland. His dad was not around, but his mom loved Jesus. And she taught him the scriptures like that little girl on the screen. She would pay him a quarter for every scripture he memorized. And he had a good mind. And he was getting rich. Because he went for the short verses. And so his mom dropped the ante down to a nickel. But he still kept memorizing. And today, you can almost say a book and he'll just quote stuff. It's, it's powerful. But he said there was, a, there was a watershed point in his young life when some of his friends were going to go do something... And he decided he wouldn't. Sometimes character says yes, and sometimes character says no. And he said, those young men ended up in a dark place. Those young men, some ended up in prison. And he said, and I ended up on the hill here. I ended up being able to speak truth to power. Not because he's perfect, but because he understands what character is. That what I do and what I say and how I do it, and how it's fueled by love and trust and purity makes a difference in our world. So Timothy, don't let men shoulder you out of the way. Let your character lean back into that. Don't let them look down on you because you're young. But stand tall and speak out and act out in positive ways. So, Excellence in character, that's a handful. I did an alternative title called That's a Handful. And it's a, it might seem a little cheesy, but how do we remember all this? I, you know, I've, I've got to confess to you that I'm a one-point guy. I'm a person who likes to make one point and then illustrate it a bunch of ways. Well, we got five points here. So let me help us remember. Why don't you just look at your right hand for just a moment? Would you do that? Just take your right hand and just look at it for just a moment. Your little finger. What I say, your next finger, what I do, your next finger, how I love, your next finger, how I trust, and your thumb is purity. Every time you shake hands, what a handful, what I say, what I do, how I love, how I trust, wrapped together, shot through with purity. We live in a culture that high fives and low fives and Elbows and chest bumps and does all kinds of stuff. They do the clenched fist thing. The next time you do that with your hand, think what I do, what I say, how I love, how I trust. Is it shot through with purity? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you don't just leave us out there to twist in the wind, but in fact... You give us your words through the apostles and the prophets so that we can go back and read them and ingest them and learn. Help us to be people, people of excellent character. We trust you, Lord, and we're grateful. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, would you stand with me tonight? Our prayer team is going to be here. Might I suggest that the prayer team are people of character, tested people. 
And they're here to pray with you and put a hand on you, perhaps even as Paul did with Timothy, saying, Timothy, it's going to be good. Whatever it is your need tonight, why don't you just come and and have a prayer with them. And uh, on your way out, why don't you shake somebody's hands or give them a high five and go in His grace. God bless you. Thank you.